HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Learn about the wonderfully tart Montmorency cherry at choosecherries.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and it's time for our monthly review with the incredible Leah Douglas. Uh, For those of you who are not familiar with Leah, she is a journalist who covers food and agriculture uh, from the Washington, D.C. area. She focuses on corporate power, consolidation, regulation, big business, and political economy as they relate to food, agriculture, labor, land, and the environment. She is currently an associate editor and staff writer at the Food and Environment Reporting Network, and her work has appeared in the Washington Post, The Nation, The Guardian, Washington Monthly, Mother Jones, Fortune Times, Slate, Pacific Standard, The Oregonian, DCIist, and uh, DCist, excuse me, and elsewhere. Also, she was the 2020 recipient of the National Farmers Union Milt Hackle Award for Excellence in Agricultural Reporting and was a member of the 2019-2020 cohort of the New Economies Reporting Project Finance Solutions Fellowship. By the way, congratulations on those awards, Leah. I wasn't aware of that. That's a new addition to your uh, bio. Thanks so much. Did that mean you got any extra money or just, you know, you get to brag about yourself? Uh, The bragging is definitely a perk. No extra money. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, maybe someday you'll, you know, get your Nobel Prize, which you fully deserve. Um, So let us talk of the map, because you have done a lot of new work on the map. For those of you who haven't listened to Leah over the last three or four months, she's been keeping a map uh, that shows where COVID-19 outbreaks are happening in food, meatpacking and food processing plants around the country. Uh, And those results are updated quite regularly. And she has an update to tell us about us now. So go forth. Sure. So as of today, I just uh, finished updating the map for today, August 17th, as we're taping. Uh, So we've continued to see cases of COVID-19 rising in the food system. And so for those who are new to this project, I've been tracking the cases in uh, the meatpacking sector and other types of food processing and on farms. Uh, So as of mid-August, we're seeing uh, now over 55,000 COVID-19 cases among the workforce um, across those three sectors, and nearly 240 workers have died. Uh, So we've also seen continuing rise in the number of outbreaks. Uh, So 
we've right now we have over 830 outbreaks represented in our database. And most of those are mapped. Some are uh, cumulative figures provided by states. But that's, uh, you know, we're just seeing cases uh, continue to tick up and up. Uh, have seen very little plateau over the last few weeks. Wow, that's scary. And as we move into the harvest season for field workers, uh, are you're anticipating no doubt a large spike in those communities or or does working outside help mitigate the impact of the virus spread? Out of the three uh, broad sectors that I'm tracking, definitely farm work is the sector that has seen the most consistent uh, you know uh, the highest spike in cases over the summer specifically. It's been pretty steady in the meatpacking sector and other types of you know indoor food processing. Uh, but since farm work is seasonal, we have seen more cases rising uh, in June, July, August. And I would say the, you know, most of what, the reporting that I've done and read about um, the spread of COVID-19 on farms, it has less to do with working outside uh, and more to do with the communal spaces where farm workers interact with each other, whether that's, um, you know, mm. on lunch break you know, or in uh, company provided transportation vehicles or in housing, group housing. Uh, so those are the types of spaces where we've seen really rapid spread of the virus. Uh, and so, you know, c- cases continue to rise despite the fact that those workers are usually outside. Wow. That's that's troubling. Troubling. Uh, in your last piece in July, you made the point that the big packers are simply not reporting their cases, even if they are testing. So can you describe, first of all, like Tyson made a big deal about how they're testing and it turns out they're only testing or tested in like 18 out of 40 something plants. So they're they're using this as an opportunity to promote a public relations initiative about how they're doing well by their workers. But the reality is they're not actually reporting their cases. Um, on a regular basis, are they? Sure. So as I've been sort of gathering this data about the spread of COVID-19, I've been trying to distill why is it easier to access data in some cases and harder in other cases. And over time, it's become clear that, you know, both the public and private sector, the data reporting is very irregular. So, you know, it it takes a lot of effort to gather the data uh, that's reported in the database uh, and and also to standardize it so that, um, you know, the similar types of data are being reported across sectors and so on. So I I did a piece where I zoomed in on the meatpacking sector specifically to try to understand, you know, is any company in this sector doing a good job, you know, consistent job reporting cases of COVID-19 among its workforce? Essentially, what I found from my reporting was no, uh, there's not a major meatpacker that is regularly and consistently reporting data. Tyson Foods did have an effort in the spring, excuse me, where they uh, they announced that they would be implementing testing at 40 some of its facilities. And the exact parameters of that weren't exactly clear, but over the course of many press releases, uh, they rolled out testing from ultimately about 18 plants. I think Tyson has somewhere in the right. neighborhood of 120 facilities. So it's, you know, it's a fraction of their overall um the overall number of facilities that they control. Uh, and the end, that testing program ended at the end of June. And so I was curious and specifically, you know, Tyson had gotten a lot of good press about being yeah. the first meatpacker to really, you know, to say, we're going to test our own workers rather than waiting for the National Guard or the state health authority to, you know, force, you know, by bringing in external, you know, uh, testing mechanisms, force us to do that. Uh, and ultimately, you know, I was trying to point to this was a very limited program for a short period of time. 
the 40 some facilities that, you know, it, it made it seem as though they would be announcing results from 40 something facilities. In the end, they sort of walked that back, you know, they made testing available at those facilities, but the parameters of that were not clear, and they wouldn't share that information with me. Uh, so that was the result of my investigation in July. It's worth noting that about a week after that story came out, Tyson did announce that it is now in the late summer rolling out a more comprehensive testing program where it intends to test workers at all of its facilities uh, weekly, I think is the goal. Um, so that's a much more significant commitment, a much more significant uh, potential source of data, because one-time testing, of course, only gives us a snapshot for one day of you know, a right. pandemic or two days. Uh, but ongoing testing and ongoing reporting is really what the public needs to understand how the crisis is unfolding. So that's the latest. You know, I'm going to keep an eye on it. Yeah. But now when workers get sick, like what do you have any information on what, if any, assistance is given by the plants? Or I mean, do they get paid for sick time or are they simply replaced? Do they just go to work anyway, even if they test positive? What what's and and then also I want you to describe the the I think it's called the responsibility bonus that they were giving out for not taking sick time. Talk a little well, bit each, about the worker position on this. You know? Sure, sure. Well, each meat packer has a slightly different approach to how they've handled this, and you know, there's been reporting off and on over the last couple of months that you know some of the benefits that were introduced in, at the beginning of the pandemic in March and April, such as extra bonuses for working, uh, you know, for coming into work at all and, and extra bonuses for working overtime and so on, uh, paid sick leave in some in some cases, that those benefits were starting to be rolled back in July and August, uh, you know, sort of quietly. And workers, you know, con- continue to say in, in interviews and in their own testimony that, you know, they're still encountering, it's very difficult to get paid for days off. And in general, there's a culture of fear among the workforces of, you know, many meatpacking plants where, you know, even if there is some sort of incentive in place that might provide, you know, a a short term benefit, um, you know, the the workers still feel as though they're vulnerable to losing their jobs and to losing income if they do stay home. Uh, So you continue to hear reports of workers, you know, going in to work, even though they know they've tested positive, avoiding tests because they don't want to get the positive test, which might keep them home without pay for two weeks. Um, you know, it's it's not a system that's set up right now to support workers in getting the health care they need and the time off they need if they do test positive for COVID-19. Yeah, right. That was pretty much what I expected to hear. Thank you. <clears throat> um, you know, one thing that I've heard a lot of people ask, including asking me because of my interest in meat, but is the, you know, people want to know if a plant is has a lot of workers who are testing positive for covid are they contaminating the meat? And should people be careful about that? Should they be worried about that? I know that's an ongoing concern of a lot of consumers. I personally haven't seen uh, research, you know, from any reliable sources that indicate that that is a concern. So as far mm-hmm. as I know, um, no, it's not an issue. Um, of course, science on COVID is is evolving all the time. Uh, so, True. you know, I, I can only say what I've seen so far. But um, everything I've seen indicates that, you know, the main the main risk of COVID-19 in the meat sector is is in the workforce issues and that uh, as the meat moves through the supply chain and reaches the grocery store, uh, there's not, I haven't seen evidence of a significant risk there. Right. That makes sense to me. I didn't think so either, but, you know, people have asked and I thought you might have insight into it that I haven't seen myself. The senators, uh, senators Warren and Booker have instituted a query into the worker safety at meatpacking plants. Um, but they have not really been given any data by the plants. So let me ask you, wh- why is that legal? Why can plants, 
you know, why can meatpackers refuse to give uh, data to congressional inquiries? Uh, what I don't understand that. How do they get away with that? <laughs> so Warren and Booker, they announced a, you know, an investigation into meatpacking plants. Uh, they were particularly curious about, like you said, worker safety and also um, some reports that, you know, exports, meat exports have continued at a very high pace, uh, typical, if not exceeding our normal pace as the pandemic has gone on. And, and they were concerned about how, you know, food supply was used as a justification to keep plants open at the beginning of the pandemic. And was that borne out by the data now? Uh, was there ever actually a potential food shortage that we were facing was was one of their questions. And, uh, you know, they provided a timeline for the major meat packers uh, to provide them data, including data on um, COVID-19 cases and outbreaks at their facilities, and none uh, chose to share any significant uh, data with the senators. You know, it's an, it was an inquiry, as you said, it wasn't a subpoena or anything with a legal, um, you know, uh, backbone behind it is my understanding. So right. uh, unfortunately, you know, I think that there may be some ongoing uh, work on that issue. I'm not, I'm not sure of the details. Um, but it was unfortunate, you know, any, any listener can, if you Google, you know, this inquiry, and, you know, Elizabeth Warren published all of the responses. And uh, yeah. it's quite, it's quite interesting. There's a little bit of a, a tone of disrespect or disregard for the senator's inquiry and some of the responses, which would be informative to read. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely going to be looking for that. <laughs> I mean, the hubris of these guys just blows my mind. But really, they kind of, you know, they do kind of hold the cards in a lot of ways, don't they? It's very difficult to push back against these kind of organizations. Well, and it illustrates, you know, that process illustrates too, you know, in a way that we don't often get to see play out in public that this is an industry that is not accustomed to being uh, investigated or asked mm -hmm. to justify its actions. That, you know, the agriculture industry has seen decades of deregulation and decades of political pressure from industries like the meatpacking industry on regulators and policymakers. And it usually works. You know, that's been something I've covered for a long time. So, yeah. you know, this tone of, you know, well, why would you ask? We're obviously doing what's in the best interest of parties involved and we don't need to prove it to anyone. You know, it's a natural outcome of, you know, no one really asking hard questions of this sector for a really long time. And when I say no one, I mean, particularly a cozy relationship with regulators and policymakers. So I do think it, you know, it's, it's a unique example to kind of see the hostility there when there are hard questions asked. Yeah. <clears throat> They definitely are not used to it. I mean, the 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 opacity of the meat industry is certainly legendary. They've done a wonderful job of keeping it very, very much behind the curtain. Um, but let's you know, let's go back to the to the meat packing places themselves. I know it isn't your story, but you, uh, Fern just published a great piece called "The Pandemic and Protest." Pandemic and protest. Um, and that was at a Smithfield plant, I believe. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that, even though it wasn't necessarily all your reporting? Yeah, of course. We had a great story this past week from Esther Honig and Marianne Andre, two great reporters. They did an audio piece for Fern and Latino USA that was about a movement emerging of the children of meatpacking workers. They call themselves the children of Smithfield. And these, uh, you know, young people, mostly in their 20s, have been advocating for better workplace conditions for their parents and for other meatpacking workers. The story uh, for Fern was based in Nebraska and profiles some really amazing activists who are working in, in their communities to just try to raise public awareness of some of these issues that we've discussed, uh, you know, about the spread of COVID-19 
and uh, just highlight, you know, the, the struggles of their parents in some cases. Um, you know, some of the advocates' parents have died of COVID-19 or have been very ill. Uh, so I definitely encourage everyone to check that out. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, this kind of stuff is just, uh, you know, so rampant. And uh, we're finally getting the, the you know, the, the curtain that has been so successfully lowered on, on labor practices in this country. But it's finally being pulled back to show just how deregulation has played out for so many people who work in uh, these so, you know, so-called sort of, I mean, I don't know what to call them. They're essential workers. Now we recognize them as essential workers. But what would you call that strata of food workers um, who generally tend to be undocumented or, uh, you know, in some ways um, vulnerable to abuse? What would you call that strata? Well, I've definitely emphasized to, you know, a lot of folks that, you know, a lot of these issues, and we've spoken about this, you know, they existed before the pandemic and the pandemic, oh, yeah. like with so many inequities is shining a spotlight on, you know, inequities that many people didn't realize exist within the food system, or maybe, you know, people understood that the jobs were very difficult and maybe underpaid, um, but are really seeing, you know, how vulnerable these workers are. Uh, and I know I've seen, you know, some recent reporting uh, that discusses workers who say, you know, the essential uh, title, you know, was empowering at one moment in the pandemic to say, oh, our work is being recognized. Uh, And we've seen that from, you know, also like grocery workers and other folks along the food supply chain. And now as we're, you know, wearing into the sixth month of the pandemic, it's, uh, and the conditions continue to be subpar and deteriorating in some cases, you know, workers say it's not enough to just say we're essential, there needs to be um, you know, that respect needs to, to turn into something tangible. So I think that's a real realization that many are having that, you know, our quote unquote essential workforce and across all sectors in the country, you know, often tend to be workers who are underpaid and vulnerable and marginalized. Right, right. What do you think? Uh, do you think the, that unions have a role to play? I mean, can you imagine unions making a big comeback in the wake of the pandemic and the, the obvious need for better um, protections for workers? Well, certainly the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, which is the union that represents, uh, you know, most unionized meatpacking workers and, mm-hmm. and, and along with uh, grocery store workers and other uh, food supply chain workers has, has been a huge presence in, uh, you know, describing the impact of the pandemic on essential workers, uh, calling for, you know, federal and state reforms. Uh, so it's definitely been a moment of high visibility for, you know, the the presence of the union that does exist in these sectors. And it's been a moment of visibility for the fact that the union has, you know, not 100% penetration in these sectors as well. And, you know, the UFCW has made that point many times, um, where, you know, some plants have been able to win better hazard pay, you know, better paid time off, sick leave, etc, because of the presence of the union and others have not, you know, and in those cases, you know, sometimes there's not a union there. I know that, you know, one advocate I, I spoke to who works in the Northwest Arkansas um, poultry, poultry region organizing mm-hmm. workers um, said her particular concern going into the, you know, most recent sort of latter months of the pandemic is, you know, the, the workers who are in rural non-unionized plants that might have even less visibility than the workers who are in plants that are closer to an urban center um, who might live themselves in an urban center, you know, at bigger plants and so on. But there are, you know, dozens and dozens of facilities that, you know, are in very small rural communities where workers don't have the union voice. So that is something that, 
um, I'll definitely be watching for in the coming months. Yeah, because I mean, uh, you know, the the breaking up of unions and eliminating unions has been going on since the 1980s, since the Reagan era, basically. I like to blame everything on Ronald Reagan myself. Um, but yeah, so, you know, since most plants are now non-union, um, that's that's why I was, you know, curious if this, if they're going to be forced to accept a union presence um, in the coming months and years now that this kind of visibility has risen on what their practices are. So it, it'll be interesting. to. I look forward to your reporting on this subject, Leah Douglas. That's all I can say. <laughs> Thanks, Katie. And we'll be right back with Leah Douglas. This episode is brought to you by the Michigan Cherry Committee. Representing 75% of U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry production. With over 100 articles published in health journals stating the vast health benefits of Michigan superfruit, it's best to choose the cherry with more. U.S. Montmorency tart cherries. They're available year-round, dried, frozen, canned, juice, and concentrate. Learn more about the wonderfully U.S.-grown Montmorency tart cherry at choosecherries.com. And we're continuing our discussion of, um, you know, where where the workforce is. Last couple of weeks ago, I talked to Tom Philpot about OSHA, and um, which is the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, which has largely gone AWOL, apparently, um, under this administration, uh, starved, I think, both of personnel and of funding. Um, but uh, what's your take on on the OSHA response to what's been happening in meatpacking, particularly since they've been trying to speed up the line speed or the chain speed, uh, say in poultry plants from 145 to 175 birds per minute. Do you feel like OSHA has, um, you know, what's, what's your feeling about where OSHA has been during this pandemic? Well, certainly many advocates have pointed to OSHA as, you know, one of the agencies that has been the least, uh, it's been very unresponsive to complaints, workplace complaints related to COVID broadly. And um, also those in the meatpacking uh, and food processing sector. And, you know, at many state local newsrooms are doing big investigations, sort of looking at how the early months of the pandemic uh, played out in terms of, you know, the response to rising COVID-19 outbreaks in meatpacking plants, for example. And in many cases, you know, there's OSHA complaints filed that, you know, the, the workers never hear back um, or the complaint is closed. And yeah, I have a new story coming out this week looking at um, state reporting of COVID-19 data. And in oh, that good. story, um, another, you know, another expert uh, discusses, you know, OSHA, what he perceives as a lack of action by OSHA to specifically delineate what types of reporting, data reporting states should be doing around COVID-19, you know, releasing mm -hmm. information about workplaces that have outbreaks, releasing, you know, case and uh, and death numbers uh, so that, you know, as, as a public health interest is his argument. So there's a few different layers to that. It's definitely a recurring theme. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, shocking, but I, but not surprising. Let's put it that way. Um, let's talk a little bit about that um, piece that Smithfield came out that said that the media was unfair. They were targeting them. And then you wrote an excellent rebuttal. I want you to describe that exchange. <laughs> Sure. So um, on August 2nd, uh, Smithfield Foods, which is the lar largest uh, pork producer in the country, ran a full page ad in The New York Times uh, and a few other publications claiming that, quote unquote, critics, which, uh, you know, I and many others took in part to mean the media, 
were spreading misinformation about the company's handling of its COVID-19 response. And uh, it took a very defensive tone uh, discussing, you know, benefits that it had implemented for workers and really emphasizing that, you know, news about the company's, uh, you know, alleged mishandling of the response uh, was overstated. Uh, so I wrote a response op-ed discussing about, you know, Smithfield's efforts to not disclose data about its own uh, COVID-19 outbreaks within its workforce. And, you know, in my data set, I have over 2,000 cases attributed to Smithfield plants, including yep. one outbreak of over 800 cases. That's the third largest in the country. Um, wow. And, you know, Smithfield in a few ways has applied pressure to federal and state regulators to decrease its exposure to, you know, public reporting. In one case, you know, there's reporting on um, it's it's pressure on Nebraska Governor Pete Ricketts to uh, to move that state away from uh, explicitly reporting you know outbreaks at, at uh, specific facilities and owned by specific companies, which the state ultimately did uh, did stop doing that really? type of reporting. And uh, Smithfield also you know tried to quash an OSHA subpoena. Speaking of OSHA, um, mm-hmm. for data related to this uh, 800 plus case outbreak in Sioux Falls, South Dakota, which ultimately ended in a settlement agreement that, you know, the terms of which haven't been disclosed. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I was trying to make the point that, you know, these issues of, you know, Smithfield's concerns with its perceived critics could be addressed by Smithfield releasing the data that's been requested in many different ways by many different parties about how (laughs) COVID-19 has spread in its facilities, and it refuses to do so. So, uh, so that was <laughs> that was my Sunday afternoon, and uh, we haven't heard anything since. <laughs> they haven't they haven't tried to squash you. I bet they're sticking pins in your voodoo doll, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard reports that they are trying to squash me, but you know, if it happens, I'll let you know. <laughs> I wouldn't put it past them. I mean, the idea that the governor of ne- of Nebraska would you know fold like a cheap suitcase. When they say, no, we don't want to publish any data about this. I mean, this is public health for him, because as your map has proven, uh, the meatpacking plants are the source of community spread COVID throughout whatever region they exist in. So you'd think that the governor would actually have, uh, you know, a moral uh, compulsion to get that data from whatever plant it is and publish it. Uh, to the population so that their own medical community can rise to the occasion as needed. I mean, that to me is just incredibly immoral and wrong. Um, And I really encourage folks to check out, there's been great local reporting at the Omaha World Herald and other newsrooms in Nebraska really looking at, you know, it wasn't just Smithfield who was engaged in that, um, Mm -hmm. you know, in conversation with Governor Ricketts and other states like Iowa have also had similar controversies around, you know, how and whether they've decided to disclose data about meatpacking plants and COVID. So really encourage folks to check that out. Yeah, absolutely. So um, before I let you go, we have one more thing. I know it's not your thing, but I just want people listening. uh, If you have not read about the derecho, the, the sort of inland hurricane that absolutely crushed Iowa and uh, parts beyond, I think Kansas took a big hit and parts of Kentucky, maybe. Um, I think Illinois also got some damage. Um, But if you haven't checked into that, it has not been extensively covered in mainstream media. Uh, The New York Times, to my knowledge, has yet to publish a a compelling piece about it. The Washington Post published one about two days ago. Um, But really, uh, if you live on the coast, you're not hearing about this extraordinarily destructive 
uh, piece of weather that happened in Iowa where over 10 million acres of crops ready to be harvested have been absolutely flattened. Um, I imagine that Fern is going to be doing something on that, Leah. Do you have any insight into that story? Sure, definitely. Our our news reporter Chuck Abbott, who writes uh, our daily Ag Insider right. newsletter, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, we write it together. But he does uh, coverage of of things like the derecho, and uh, we have had a few you know day day after stories about that. So definitely, folks can check that out. And there's been great reporting at um, at you know local news outlets in Iowa, Illinois, other states that have been really hard hit. So always encourage sure. folks to check out those local news outlets. Yeah, absolutely. And and finally, what else are you working on? What do you see are the big stories coming up in the next few weeks? Well, I have a story coming out this week uh, that folks should be able to see soon about, as I mentioned earlier, states uh, disclosing data about COVID-19 in the food system. So I did the earlier story looking at the private sector, lack of disclosure, and the story is looking at the public sector, lack of oh. disclosure as well. So you'll be able to see uh, depending on which state you're in, you know, how much data that state was willing to release about uh, its own uh, COVID-19 outbreaks in, in food system facilities. And it's a story relevant to, you know, every state. I think in my database, I have outbreaks tracked in at least 44 or 45 states. So even if, you know, you don't think your state is an agricultural state, uh, odds are very good that there actually has been an outbreak of COVID-19 at a food-related facility in your region. And uh, so I hope folks will check that out as well to understand how state departments of health are handling these requests. Yeah, really. And which states are are hand are? I mean, for example, I noticed that Rhode Island, because we have the Daniele uh, prosciutto uh, and cured meats plant happening here in Boroughville, Rhode Island, that they even they had an outbreak of COVID. And, you know, and that I learned from your map. Now, I imagine that Gina Raimondo, the governor here in Rhode Island, is pretty uh, upfront about disclosing uh, things like that to the public. Um, but I, I, I imagine that uh, more Republican uh, governors uh, possibly are not so likely to tell the truth, like Georgia, where they've been suppressing that information anyway. So that should be really well, interesting reading. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And, you know, uh, you know, I, the specific findings, I'll have to wait until the story runs, but uh, just, you know, the, the, just a trend is definitely across uh, party lines. You know, there wasn't a specific trend to pull out around which states were more likely to share data than others. Uh, so, huh. you know, I think I think folks will be surprised at the findings for uh, which states were and were not willing to share it. Oh, well, I look forward to reading it, Leah. Thank you so much for joining me today. Really appreciate your insights as always. It's a joy and a delight to speak with you. And I'll talk to you next month. Have a great, you know, month. Great. And Thanks, Katie. Day. Yep. Thank you, sweetie. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. 
just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.